0: DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. What up, y'all, and welcome to another edition of Torre Show. Dr. Melina Abdullah is one of the most inspiring people I have ever met. She's one of the original members of Black Lives Matter. She was there that first night that Patrice Cullors called people to join her for a strategy session that was about creating a movement in the wake of the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Dr. Abdullah is a fierce activist who's considered the staunchest and most public critic of the LAPD. She's a professor and the chair of the Department of Pan-African Studies at Cal State in L.A., and she's a woman of fierce strength, deep wisdom, and profound love who inspires her students and her friends to see her as a mother figure. Recently, Dr. Abdullah was in serious legal jeopardy. The LAPD arrested her for assaulting a police officer after she was alleged to have touched an officer's arm. She faced years in prison, and when you're the LAPD's biggest critic, you can't expect to get a fair shake in a situation like that. You've got to anticipate the system trying to silence you. But Dr. Abdullah has a huge community behind her, people who love her in a profound way, and they rallied on her behalf in all sorts of ways, and because of intense public pressure, the charges were dropped. We started there. It's Dr. Malina Abdullah... On Torre Show, you recently came through a bit of a fire. You had a you had a situation where the cops said that you had uh, hit one of them or touched one of them, and you faced a year or more in prison. And the charges ended up getting dropped. But I'm sure it was extremely frightening just to even be in that situation. Can you give us your overview of what happened?
1: Sure. So they didn't allege that I hit anybody. What they charged me with is battery, which the legal definition is any unwanted touching. So the only allegation came from a single officer. I was surrounded by, you know, at least 10 officers. And a single officer says that I touched his arm in the midst of kind of this chaos um, that was happening inside of L.A. Police Commission. Um I didn't even touch his arm, um, but that's what the initial charge was. What they did, what the um, police tried to do is then tack on seven additional counts. Um, and so I was looking at um, if the counts were concurrent, it could have been up to three and a half years if, um, or is that right, consecutive, it would have been three and a half years if they were concurrent, it was a year. Um, but thankfully you know, um, we or, we're organizers. And so people understood that the reason I was being prosecuted was because I'm an organizer. And so that this wasn't just about um, descending on me as an individual, but it was really kind of the criminalization of black protest. And so um, I'm really appreciative of the community. Tens of thousands of folks signed a petition. Um, there were thousands of uh, folks who sent in letters, um, made phone calls, daily phone calls to the city attorney's office. And then at least 200 people showed up to every single court date um, that I had. And we believe that that's why um, the charges were dropped along with having a really stellar legal team that um, volunteered their services to get me off. And so um, I am relieved. I always said, you said, I must have been frightened. I always tell my children I'm not scared of anything. I tell my people I'm not scared of anything. But I was concerned, <laughs> absolutely concerned.
0: <laughs> uh, so do you read this, because you are known in an, in L.A. at least, if not the rest of the nation, as you know one of the most effective, most passionate critics of the LAPD. Do you look at this as targeting, as let's get Melina, let's put some fear in her, maybe make her shut up, maybe put her in jail, something?
1: It was absolutely targeting. In fact, the officer who says I touched him said exactly your words. He said, get Melina. So they were absolutely targeting me. Um, but I think more than just me, it was about a movement. I'm actually the third Black organizer to be charged inside LA Police Commission um, in the last couple of years. Another Black Lives Matter member was charged before me, and he was actually went to trial. His name is Akili, and um, he actually went to trial on his case. And before him there was a brother named Jeff Page, General Jeff, who um, organizes around police brutality as well, um, and he was charged. What's interesting is none of our white allies are non-black allies have ever been um, charged with a crime. They might be pulled out of police commission meeting. They might be even arrested on rare occasion, but they're never charged. Um, One of the counts that I was charged on, or one of the days I was charged on, I was actually um, arrested with two white allies, two white women allies. And for the exact same action, I was charged, but those two white women were not charged.
0: So, I mean, when you know a lot about BLM, you know that this attempt to criminalize protest is part of the resistance to BLM, that occasionally they sort of seem to target people and make it so that their legal situation is such that they can't protest for for a little while because they got to get out of their legal morass. I mean, my God. (laughs) <laughs> the ways that they use to try to silence you guys is, is insane.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's really like when you think about um, back away from the situation and kind of take a hawk's eye view of it all. Right. So if we think about what's happening, they're killing black people with impunity. Um, officers are not charged. They're not prosecuted for murdering our people. Right. Um, Most of the time they remain on the same force that they um, committed these murders with. We have officers at LAPD who've committed two, three, four murders and there's no disciplinary action and there's no legal action against them. And then when black people say, stop killing us, that becomes the criminal act. And so it's an absolutely insane system, but it's also not different from what we've experienced from our entire time in this country. If you think about, you know, um, protests against chattel slavery, right? How, what was the harshest punishment meted out against um, black enslaved folks. It was when we dared to stand up against the system of chattel slavery. If we think about um, uh, the first lynching era, right, and the way in which women like Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell and the black club women were targeted with Ida B. Wells, you know, home and office burned down, right? Um, it was her speaking up against lynching, civil rights, black power, the same thing. So this targeting and criminalization of black protest is nothing new. But it is something that we need to see as a huge injustice and something that we need to resist. It should make us redouble our efforts and continue to struggle for the freedom of our people.
0: Have w- When you were in custody for a few hours on this arrest, were you treated fairly?
1: No, absolutely not. And I think that was part of their attempt to, um, intimidate me. Um, I was arrested along with the aunt of Wakisha Wilson, Sheila Hines Brim. So the chaos that was happening in the room that day was because Sheila Hines Brim is alleged to have, well, now she's already been through her own court battle, um, thrown the ashes of her niece, Wakisha Wilson, into the face of the ousted police chief, Charlie Beck. Wow. And so we were both arrested at the same time. Um, I didn't know what had happened because I was just entering the room and um, I didn't see any of this. When they arrested me, Um, I was really trying to see what was happening, trying to come to the defense of Sister Sheila, because we try to protect the families as much as possible. Although Sheila is a really strong woman and probably doesn't need our protection, but we were um, in community together. I was shocked when we were put into these um, holding rooms that the people who came to see me were um, homicide detectives. And that was troubling to me. I've been arrested many times out of police commission in the midst of protests. I've been arrested before, but never have I been interrogated. I was taken into a room called the hard interrogation room. We were separated and I was taken into a hard interrogation room and I was interrogated by two homicide officers, which has never happened before. And so that did bring um, some alarm. I was um, concerned that I was being arrested for something that, you know, was much more than protest.
0: Mm. What else happened when you were in custody that was inappropriate, illegal, meant to intimidate?
1: I mean, they were clearly trying to um, get me to buy into this narrative that protest is something that shouldn't happen and is something that's illegal. So those officers kind of, um, they interrogated me for many hours. And so they... Even though I've been arrested before, I I did break down a little bit. And they kept asking me, well, you know, don't you think that you should just be quiet? Don't you think? And I, I didn't know how I was going to get myself out of that situation. Um, when we were finally booked into the jail, the jail that we're booked into is the same jail where they killed Wakisha Wilson. And so it was for me, it was difficult. I've been booked into that jail before. But um, Sheila Hancock hasn't. And so the bigger issue for me is how does her aunt feel being booked into the jail where her niece was murdered? And I just feel that that is um you know it's it's psychological. It's a it's 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 an attempt to really kind of re-traumatize um, both of us, but especially her. And so I was um, especially concerned about that. They kept us much longer than they normally do. Initially, they said they weren't going to release us. They were holding us, I think, on um, $50,000 bail or something like that. And we couldn't muster that kind of the kind of money they were talking about. But there was so much pressure that we were both released on OR. And um, so that was, you know, good. At the time, again, we didn't know that they were going to tack on these additional counts for my case. So I didn't know what I was facing. It was actually the period after coming out of jail that I was most concerned when we went to court that first date, when instead of one charge, it was eight charges. I understood that the first charge was one that I could beat because there's video evidence, Mm -hmm. right? I could show that I hadn't committed battery on an officer. I didn't know how I was going to beat eight charges. And um, I think the lesson in this is we always have to organize. Always have to fight. Don't let them intimidate us into silence. Um, and so that's kind of what I've learned from this: is that the fight, especially if it's righteous, right? If it's a righteous fight, you gotta keep fighting. And I think we're um, uh, on the eve. Uh, um, March 27th is the anniversary. Is the three-year anniversary of Wakisha Wilson's um, murder. And so I'm a strong believer that the work that we do is also spiritual work. And Waquisha's spirit is all up in this, and she wasn't going to let her aunt go down or me go down. And so um, that's also a reminder to us that um, there are forces that we can't always see working.
0: Are there other ways that you see the police are following you, intimidating you, or trying to intimidate you, pulling you over on the highway, or these sorts of things, or parking outside your house or are there other things they're doing
1: all the time i mean we regularly see there was a i live not close to a freeway exit um not where you know the highway patrol would be sitting in front of my house but they're constantly sitting in front of my house there have been Um, Marked cars and unmarked cars, there's only one way in and one way out of my um, street, um, kind of dead-ended, and um, there's always cars parked, um, marked and unmarked police cars um, parked there. Um, We did try to get some um, uh, records through a PRA request. They were denied, so we're not quite sure what's happening with that. Um, but we know that we're being monitored. We know that we're being surveilled. Um, police constantly say there, you know, even in, you know, flying to different cities. Um, just a few months ago, I was flying into D.C. and there was a um, DOJ agent who I never introduced myself to um, who told me, I know who you are. Um, and police constantly try to tell us, not just me, but several of us, call us by name when we don't know who those officers are. And I think that those are all intimidation tactics. Um, you know, they like to let us know that they're watching. And I'm sure that there's other ways that they're watching and surveilling and monitoring um, that we're not always aware of. Um, so, yeah, we know that that's happening.
0: I know that you are selfless within this realm. Um, but you are a mother of, you have three children? I have three children, yes. And you're also one of the mothers of the movement. There's a lot of people who look to you to lead the organization and lead the organizing. So is there is there a fear that something will happen to you that will make life harder for all these other people who are relying on you.
1: So I don't have fear. Um, you know, there's a saying: fear and faith can't occupy the same space. And I'm a faithful person, and I know that I speak a lot in spiritual terms. But I, I believe in a creator. I believe in ancestors. I believe that as long as we move righteously, that I'm divinely protected. And um, I know that that didn't protect some folks who were taken out in this movement, right? Um, but I believe, and my children are very aware of what I do. My children are organizers themselves. Um, my oldest daughter is, you know, the lead of the Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard, one of the leads of the Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard. And um, beyond the spiritual connections, spiritual protection, um, I think we all understand that we've developed really strong relationships and loving relationships within our community. Um, So organizations from, you know, the Brown Berets to the Nation of Islam to, you know, Akili, who I call Baba, right, are there to protect me. And um, I understand that. I know that, you know, my people um, that I'm in community with, um, are there to protect me as well. And so I'm not afraid. And I believe in living a life of purpose. And I believe that this work is my calling. And so I'll continue to do the work. And no cop or white supremacist or anybody else is going to shake me from doing the work.
0: That's really inspiring. Where in your life, going back further, where in your life does this courage and this, this faith in faith um come from who are the people or or what are the experiences that led you to this current state of i am not afraid i am going forward no matter what
1: um i got it from my mama mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. my mother is absolutely fearless my mother um you know she she's everything and, you know, if I can do work that honors her, if I can do work that honors my grandmother and my great-grandmother and, you know, all of my maternal line, you know, I think about, um, I carry the middle name of the first person in my family to be brought here as an enslaved person, um, my great-great-great-great-grandmother, Rachel. And I think about what it must have been for her. And so any um, any danger that I face is nothing compared to that, right? It's nothing compared to what our ancestors went through. Um, I was always um, raised to believe my—I my, grew up across the street from my great-grandpa, and he called me his old top. Right. And I was always raised to believe that I was special and, you know, that we were all special and that we all had a calling and, um, you know, just keep doing the work. That's the whole point. There's nothing to be afraid of. Grandpa, he trained all of our um, all the grandkids were taught to swim. Um, Now, he didn't teach me this way, but all the other grandkids were taught this way by throwing them off a boat and making them swim back to the boat. And they all did. Nobody drowned, right? And I think that was also a lesson, though, in courage, right? Grandpa always taught us to be courageous, not be afraid of the lizards. Like the girls, we would catch lizards and snakes and all that stuff, too, right? So I've never been afraid. And um, I think... I'm becoming more conscious of the need to um, reject fear. And that's what I teach my children as well, to reject fear. Fear is, now I sound like Will Smith, right? Fear is a choice, right? (laughs) Um, Danger is real, but fear is a choice. So, yeah.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the
1: first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This
0: is the story of the original influencer. This is... Is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Um, you told me a great story once that I want you to tell the folks about uh, when you were occupying the LAPD headquarters. And it, I believe it was your son wanted to go to the bathroom and he had to sort of stand down, uh, stand up to this cop, um, following what you had taught him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we also, you know, the kind of idea of courage is also rooted in spirituality. So we're meditators in my family. We meditate daily. Um, And um, my son, who I believe he was, he had to be four at the time, maybe five, um, it was the first, quote-unquote, occupation, we now call them decolonizations, but occupation of the Black Lives Matter movement. We had taken over LAPD headquarters, and um, we were demanding justice for Ezel Ford. And it's a public building. LAPD headquarters is a public building that's open 24 hours a day. And so my son, who was a little boy, um, it w- he was still four, um, he needed to use the restroom, and we had been kind of going in and out using the restroom. And this officer, and this was the middle of the night because it was a 24 7 encampment. We walk in, this officer, this really tall, he was well over six feet, officer stands in front of us and tells us we can't use the restroom. And he looks at my son and he puts his hand on his gun. And, um, you know, it's still every time I say that part, it makes me emotional because I just think about how could you, right? And my son brings us all down. He sits on the floor at the officer's feet and he crosses his legs, you know, crisscross applesauce. And he puts his fingertips together and he begins to go, um meditate at the feet of this officer. And it totally, like, recentered us. And he wasn't able, you know, the, I don't know what it did to the officer, but for us, all of the anxiety and fear and emotion kind of dissipated. And we were watching this little boy know exactly what to do, you know? Um, and so I think that, for me was one of the pivotal moments of BLM, but also of being, his name is Amen, of being Amen's mama. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's pull back a second. Do you think that the LAPD is reformable or is it policing in general that is the problem?
1: Um, both. LAPD is reformable. Um, However, those reforms are not going to Save our lives. So, those reforms might reduce the killings of our people at the hands of police, but it's not going to save all of us. And so, you know, we've been talking a lot in the movement about the difference between a victory. And justice. So we just won a victory last week. Um, the LAPD officers who murdered Grishario Mack inside the crenshaw Baldwin Hills Mall, the Black Mall, without even bothering to evacuate the mall before they poured seven shots into the back of this man. Um, who was having a mental health episode, right? Those officers were found to be out of policy by the police commission. Um, That sets it up so the officers can be fired by the police chief and prosecuted by the DA. The DA can prosecute regardless of the outcome. The truth is, so that was a victory. We had to fight for that. There were only, there have only been four occasions in the almost six year existence of BLM where LAPD has found that the officers were out of policy. So this was a victory. It was a huge fight and it was a huge win. However, LAPD is still killing people, right? And so we can look at reform, we can say, well, they killed less people in 2018 than they did in 2017, and they killed less people in 2017 than they did in 2016. But until the killings of our people stops you know, it's not justice. And so we need an end to violence at the hands of police. And the only way to do that is to really kind of adopt an abolitionist frame. And I know people go, wait, what does that mean? How are we going to be safe without police? Well, I think that for black folks, we need to think about how police treat us, right? It doesn't mean the end of public safety. What it means is the end of policing as we know it. And so when we look at most major cities spending upwards of 50% of their city's budget on police who harass, surveil, brutalize, and kill our people, um, and feed a prison system that further traumatizes and decimates our community, then we need to think about other options. I love some of the work that Chokwe Antar is doing in Jackson, Mississippi, some of the work that Raz Baraka is doing in Newark, where there taking money back from police and saying, what are community solutions to public safety? What if we gave people, maybe even formerly incarcerated people, jobs to create safe communities. And you're seeing crime go down as a result. So I think we have to be more creative. We have to stop saying that we need to invest in a system that evolves from slave catching. And people always say that's an extremist thing to say. But I encourage folks to read books, read books like City of Inmates by Kelly Lytle Hernandez, right, that talks about the history of policing and jails. Um, where we know that yesterday's slave patrols are today's police forces, and those are not reformable institutions. We need other public safety systems. And so that's what we want to encourage people to do. That's how we get to justice, not just these kind of measurable victories that don't mean that any of us are really free.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just to step back for one second, when you say abolitionist, you mean... Uh, you want to see the uh, the end of the uh, modern American police force.
1: Absolutely. And um, I think that when we think about the term abolition, people think about the end of something, but they don't think about the ways in which abolitionists, like most people, when you say abolition, they think about the abolition, the end of chattel slavery, right? They don't think about abolitionists as just um, is not only ending the system of chattel slavery, but building towards freedom. Abolition means two things. Abolition means ending the oppressive systems that exist, but also imagining and building new systems. And so, yes, I mean an end to policing as we know it. I also mean the development of creative and beneficial systems of public safety.
0: Yeah. What would, re- I, I want to say, what would replace policing, but then that would be the same thing. But do, do you foresee civilian patrols? Like, what would there not be a need for something in its place?
1: So we don't have all the answers to everything, but I can give you a couple of examples, right? Um, so I mentioned Grishario Mack, who was murdered inside the Crenshaw Mall, having a mental health episode. Why would we call LAPD on someone who is not armed with any illegal thing, right? He was alleged to have been holding a kitchen knife, not attacking or threatening anybody, but holding a kitchen knife, right? Why would we call LAPD to come in with what one witness called every gun blazing? right? Why wouldn't we have a mental health team that could come out and talk to Grishario about what's happening with him? Why wouldn't we give him the space that he said he needed? He said, just leave me alone. Why wouldn't we give him time and space to settle himself, right? Um, that's an example of public safety, another example of public safety is when I first moved to an area of Los Angeles called Leimert Park. There were these, um, I always wonder, why are all these old people sitting out on their porches in the morning? Well, the neighborhood had organized itself, working class neighborhood, so that the grandparents sat out on the porch from 7 a.m. to about 8.30 every morning watching the children walk to school and it made the children's walk to school safe. Why can't we think of creative things like that? When we think about the things that most people call police force? Uh, po- police for, um, there's a study out of UC Berkeley that says upwards of 90% of those calls are calls where we really don't need police. It's nuisance calls. It's people calling police because their neighbor is playing the radio out too loud.
0: Barbecuing in the wrong place.
1: Right. Barbecue Becky's. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we learn to say if your neighbor is playing the radio too loud, you can get up and go knock on their door and say, you know what? The baby's trying to sleep. Do you mind turning down the radio? You know, we don't need police coming in and possibly killing someone because of something that we could handle just by developing stronger community ties.
0: Yeah. okay. just to push the point one more step. I mean, that is not going to work when you have a criminal organization that is selling drugs or doing whatever the mafia does or any of these other sort of groups that organize to have a criminal uh, operation. So what then?
1: So I don't have that answer. (laughs) I I don't have all the answers. Um, I do know that um, we're talking about much lower than 10% are kind of these organized crime pieces, right? Um, I do know that when you're talking about crime in black communities, right, the things that they say that we should be afraid of, right, so-called gang members, I do know that most of the folks who are engaged in this kind of work in black neighborhoods, it's because they have little alternative. I do know that if we reinvested a portion of that money to make sure that children, there was a study out of RAND, which is not like some bastion of liberalism, right, um, that said you could virtually eliminate youth crime just by having quality after-school programs from 3 to 7 p.m., right? So if we took, in Los Angeles, it's 53 percent of the city's general fund. If we took some of that money, And invested it in quality after school programs, you could wipe out so-called real crime, right, among youth. If we took some of that money and talked about, you know, livable wage jobs for folks, when we talk about gang involvement, some of the things that people are doing um, are so-called gang crime, right? These are crimes of need, right? They ha- they don't have livable wage jobs when you and it ties into like larger policies, like. Um, People who are convicted of crimes, then carrying that with them forever, so they can't get housing, they can't get food stamps. You know, they can't get um, another job, and so those are things that we need to think about. Is also public safety questions.
0: No, you're definitely right that 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 especially within the black community, the police are often criminogenic, um, perhaps even more so than they are preventing crime. So. In an, in an analysis of an, a question of abolition, it, it, we definitely are facing more from the police than from the other organizations within uh, the community that might be trying to respond to their lack of options with crime. But what, so, so outside of abolition, in a world that accepts we may have to live with the LAPD, what specific reforms do you most want to see?
1: Well, I think the the biggest one is thinking about how to divest from an over-reliance on policing. Um, so divert some of those funds into we don't have to completely eliminate LAPD tomorrow, but we do have to get that budget number down. We do have to use that budget number to invest in the things that make communities safe, like mental health resources, housing, livable wage jobs, after school programs, diversion programs, those kinds of things. I would love to see that happen. We also, um, it took me some time to get to this position, but we also have to have accountability. So police who kill people absolutely have to be prosecuted for those crimes, right? And then we also have to do away with this notion that police can justify killing people by simply saying that they're scared for their lives. In California, um, what we're seeing is, you know, a murder after murder, where even when um, uh, there's recommendations for police to be prosecuted. DA's are rejecting those cases Or the police are kind of beating those cases by using the I feared for my safety um, excuse. And so in California, we are starting to look at what we call non-reformist reforms. Last year, we passed um, a police transparency bill, um, which allows us to kind of see who are the problematic officers, what have they done, and what do these cases look like, right? In California, they were previously um you know under this veil of secrecy so when police killed somebody um so if we think about the murder of Laquan McDonald in Chicago which is why we should never believe Chicago police right um one of the reasons right um that's a shout out to Jesse Smollett Mm. right Um, (laughs) um but when we think about um The murder of Laquan McDonald, the only reason that we ever got to how they murdered this 17-year-old boy is because we were able to get the surveillance video from Burger King, right? And then we saw that the community accounts of what happened were true. The police accounts were lies, right? That they murdered Laquan McDonald in cold blood. In California, up until the passage of this bill that was the first co-sponsored Black Lives Matter bill, We didn't have that right. So Keith Bercy, for instance, was murdered and his murder was captured on video on uh, from a um, convenience store video. His grandmother had no right to that video. Even though it was there. And so we passed this bill that now we can see this video evidence. We can see, you know, evidence about officers like Eden Medina, who killed Jesse Romero, a 14 year old boy, for tagging, um, and had just killed another young man in the same neighborhood, I believe it was 16 days before. So we can start to kind of root out these especially uh, murderous officers. What we're doing this year with our follow-up bill is um, really Stefan Clark's bill. Everybody will remember Stefan Clark was murdered in his grandmother's backyard last year while holding a cell phone that the police say that they mistook for a gun. They said that they feared for their lives, and so the DA in Sacramento refused to prosecute them. What this bill will do, Assembly Bill 392, We're pushing for it to pass. It changes the use of force standards. So it says that police don't get to kill people and then use what they call the reasonable officer standard. Was there a reasonable fear? Instead, it has to be a necessary standard, and I hate that word, but it has to be that they've exhausted all other options. So in the case of Groshario Mac, it requires the time and distance, right? In the case of Stefan Clark, you know, it requires that they take a pause and not murder him in his grandmother's backyard. And so that's what we're thinking of when we talk about, you know, what kinds of non-reformist reforms we can institute, implement. Um, we're trying to pass legislation that does that. On the federal level, there's one more that's happening um, uh Uh, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Karen Bass, who happens to be my member of Congress, who's a former community organizer um, here in Los Angeles, and I mean a real organizer. She's the founder of Community Coalition. She's, um, tomorrow on Waukesha Wilson's um, death anniversary, she's introducing a family notification bill. Because the other thing that we're seeing is that in addition to murdering folks, when folks are killed, when our people are killed by police. They're not even treated as human beings. They assassinate their character.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: But then they also sometimes keep their body, bodies in custody without notifying families for days and days. In the case of Wakisha Wilson, her family wasn't notified for almost four days. And so those are all things that we're working on legislatively that we think can move us down the path to justice.
0: I want to give a shout out to longtime supporter of the show, Policy Genius. They make it easy to get life insurance. And look, everybody needs life insurance because that's how you take care of your family. I mean, like when I go to sleep at night, I want to know that if something happens to me, I don't wake up for some reason, my family will be taken care of and they're not going to end up homeless. How do you do that? Make sure you have insurance so something will be there to save you. In case of a rainy day, in case of the, a typhoon, in case of a monsoon somebody will be there looking out for you policy genius is the easy way to buy life insurance online you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price in just two minutes policy genius will help you find the best price and once you've applied their team will help handle all the paperwork and all the red tape no commission no hidden fees they're just saving time and money for you so what could be better than that And they don't just do life insurance. Whatever you need, home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance, they'll get you that financial protection that you deserve so you can relax at night and know your family's going to be taken care of. So if you need life insurance and you're short on time and who's got time to waste talking about insurance, go over to policygenius.com, compare quotes, find the right policy for you. Policy Genius is easy. They're going to help you save money, and it's going to go fast. Spend less time comparing life insurance and more time doing literally anything else like listening to more Torrey Show podcasts by going to Policy Genius, handle that adulting stuff real easily, and get back to living. One of the things about the feared for my life line that you hear over and over and over that just kills me. Um, I read a study several years ago about the superhumanization bias that white people feel toward black people. So we are imagined to have superhuman strength, speed, you know, sometimes the ability to have bullets bounce off of us. So when the officer is in this sort of a struggle and he's imagining this younger black male as being physically superior to him, Of course, he would go into a mode of fear and wanting to kill. And that's not about what is actually happening with that black boy or man in front of you. Uh, That's about your biases that you take into the job.
1: Absolutely. We remember what Darren Wilson said about Mike Brown, right? Um, That that bias that you're talking about also imagines like if you if they walk in a room, And there's two black people in the room. They also imagine that there's more. So it's each black person is imagined as being more dangerous. And they always imagine that there are more of us than there actually are. That is a sickness, right? And I think that those kinds of fears are things that they need to deal with themselves that should not justify the murder of our people. Right. Um, And so I think, you know, when we're talking about those imagined um, realities, these um, fantasies, black, uh, these fantasies of who black people are, then it shows that uh, many of the police who are policing, maybe all of the police who are policing, aren't fit to do so.
0: You're big on supporting uh victims and theirs and their families who survived them and you know quick to you know if something happens to go out and reach out to the family and, and try to comfort them and try to help them politically and spiritually and i wonder the impact on you of being part of so many police killings so many heartbreaking black deaths that are unjust What impact does that have on your spirit?
1: I'm not quite sure. Um, I don't feel burdened. You know, a lot of folks talk about, like, you must feel burdened. I don't feel burdened by it. Um, In fact, like, the relationships that I have with the families are a great honor to me. I feel honored that... um, so I'm, I'm particularly close with um, both Wakisha Wilson's family and um, Kenneth Ross's family, Kenneth Ross's mother. And, you know, Kenneth Ross's mom will call me sometimes midnight and we'll just talk on the phone and she'll mention Kenneth, but that's not all we talk about. We'll go and, you know, we're talking about what we're going to do. Our kids are around the same age. What are we going to do with our kids? Right. Kendrick McDade's mom, you know. We um, have a dominoes game that we got to get together on, right? And, you know, those are, you know, it's, it's not just tragedy, right? It's um, people, hmm. Brian Stevenson says that people shouldn't be, um, are much more than the worst thing that they've ever done, right? I think also people are much more than the worst thing that they've ever experienced right? Like, there's so much more to these families than tragedy. You know, I met a cousin of mine, actually, in this work, um, when we had our first movement for Black Lives convening in Cleveland. There was a panel of moms, and there was this one mom who, I don't know why, I just connected with her face. And later I saw her um, back at the hotel where everyone was staying and we were talking and she was from Florida and I don't have any family in Florida but as we started to talk about like how she got to Florida she had come from New Orleans she actually it's it's terrible she fled hurricane Katrina to Florida and thought she was finding space in Florida but Florida is where Tampa Florida is where her son Andrew Joseph the 3rd was killed um But we kept talking and it turned out that she wasn't from New Orleans either, really, that her family was from Beaumont, Texas, which is where my family is from. So then I call my mom and my uncle and we all walk it back and we go, we're cousins, we're related, right? So now Deanna Hardy Joseph and I, we spend time together. We're talking about how do we take her daughter, um, Deja, is the same age as my oldest daughter. How do we go on spring break together, right? And so it's not just the tragedy of Andrew's murder. It's also the beauty of the lives that remain. And so it's not burdensome to me to deal with the families, to... um, you know forge relationships with them to do spiritual work with them it's an honor and yeah there's some heaviness when we go out the first thing we try to do is like go out when someone's killed and pour libation and pray for their spirit pray for their families do vigils that part is sad but it's also kind of getting through it together that i really think um, not only bonds me and them but bonds our entire community together
0: Mm. Um, in one of the stories about you, you said, I carry a lot of guilt. About what?
1: Hmm. I don't know if guilt was the right word. Um, I don't know what the word is. Maybe, maybe it's guilt. It's, I know that when I meet a family, that I'm going to bond with them that I'm going to feel the spirit of their loved one, and then I'm going to struggle for justice with them. And I know that I'm not going to get it. I know that the system that we live under, we're not going to get justice. It's not going to come tomorrow or next week or at the end of the year or two years. Um, You know, we're not going to get to justice right now. And... Um, You know, sometimes I think about now there's there's this mom who's probably one of the strongest moms in the movement. Her name is Helen Jones. Her son, John Horton, was beaten to death inside of men's central jail 10 years ago, 10 years ago. That is still an open investigation. The district attorney won't even give her closure of saying she's going to charge the officers or not charge the officers 10 years later. Helen Jones is still struggling. And um, I think she's viewed like um, a lot of black women are viewed. Like she comes to these demonstrations every single week in front of the DA's office. And she's one of the most powerful speakers you've ever heard in your life. And I've never seen Sister Helen break until last week. And last week she started to give this powerful speech that we all feed off of. But the day before it was John's birthday and Helen broke and she cried and nobody knew what to do because Sister Helen never breaks. Right. She never cries. We know she's mourning, but her mourning comes out in like this fierce struggle for him. And so she broke. And, um, you know, I I talked to her that night and after, Um, but I feel like, how can we, how can we do something so she doesn't have these breaks, right? I don't ever want to see her cry, but I know that when we go, his anniversary is on Saturday. It'll be 10 years on Saturday, and I don't know what we're going to experience when we're standing in front of Men's Central Jail on Saturday, so I want to do more, you know, I want, I can't, um, I can't fix it. We can't fix it. The movement can't fix it right now, but it needs to be fixed right now. Cause every moment it, that goes by is somebody else's child or mother or father that's killed.
0: Hmm. What do you get out of meditation?
1: sanity (laughs) I get sanity out of it Um, I learned to meditate before the Black Lives Matter movement Um, I went through a terrible divorce now I'm telling you all my business but terrible divorce like seven years ago and I was working with someone um, just a friend and he said to me "Um, if you don't learn to meditate you're going to lose your mind and I don't want to lose my mind. I'm the only parent my children have, right? And so I started meditating. And for me, meditation is sanity. I always describe it. I meditate with my students too, who I call my spirit children, right? Um, So in most of my classes, especially my activism classes, we meditate once a week at least. And I tell them that to do justice work, we have to restore ourselves. And for me, meditation is restoration. It's um, it's a shower for your soul. It's the way to get all of that muck off of you going into police commission, standing in front of Jackie Lacey, hearing these white supremacists say crazy stuff, right? you got to wash that off of your spirit. And so meditation is that. And then meditation is also like a raincoat. So like all the stuff they're hurling at you, it like exists as kind of this protective cover. So it doesn't really stick to your spirit. And so for me, like I would be a different, maybe I'll say a different kind of crazy than I am um, if I didn't meditate.
0: What does your practice look like? How long do you meditate? Is it daily Do you have a a spot? Do you have a mantra?
1: (laughs) Um, I do have a spot. I have several spots. Um, I often meditate on campus and invite other people to meditate with me. Um, I am, even though I've been doing it for about seven years, I'm... Not very good at meditating without a guided meditation. So I use a guided meditation. Right now, Oprah and Deepak just launched their new meditation for the season. So I'm doing that one. Um, And I know people say, oh, that's like, you know, not real meditation. Hey, it works for me. Right. So, <laughs> so I use Oprah Deepak when it's out. Um, but when it's not out, there's a, a sister that I went to undergrad with, um, Tony Blackman, who does um, meditations specifically that are like black women's meditations. And um, she has this one about water that I do almost um, like when Oprah Deepak is not on, I do that one almost every day. That's almost the only one I use, which is about being like water, right? Like being fluid like water. And um, so I guess that's my mantra is learning to be fluid like water, flow like water. And um, I love that there's music behind it. And um, that's the one I use. And that one's pretty short. That one's only seven minutes. The Oprah ones are 21 20, 21 minutes.
0: Is that what you prefer to do, like a 20-minute stretch?
1: Yeah. So after I do Tony's, I kind of sit still um, for a little bit longer because I'm not ready to open my eyes yet. But 20 minutes is good for me.
0: Um, Part of why I dig into this is that, you know, when media talks about Black Lives Matter and the people in it, They focus on the the activism, the more sort of telegenic, aggressive uh, activist moments, and they miss the self-care moments. And that is something that is very important to everybody in BLM I've ever met. And can you talk a little bit about about that side of things and, and how important that is?
1: So that's funny because everybody laughs at me because I hate the term self-care. Um, <laughs> I use, um, well, part of it is I think that a lot of folks, especially younger folks, have misinterpreted self-care as selfish care, right? So I think a lot of folks think that self-care means that they get to do whatever they want whenever they want. They get to abandon the movement, right? Because you know they don't have capacity, right? They use that term a lot. I don't have capacity. Well, hell, you don't even have children yet, right? So, so how are you out of capacity when I have three children and I'm a single mom, right? So that part bothers me. That doesn't mean that I don't believe in the care of our souls, right? So I believe in prayer and meditation. Um, I also, you know, believe in physical you know, keeping ourselves physically fit. Um, So, you know, I do daily walks, which is part of both my spiritual and my physical health, right? I try to eat clean. Um, All of that is part of what I think of as community care, right? So it's me caring for myself, taking time to care for myself, but it's also like why I often meditate in a group right? How are we taking care of each other? It's not enough to just say, oh, let's give Jan the space she needs. Jan is my sister in BLM. Um, Give her the space she needs to take her walks. No. Let's say, Jan, did you do your walk today? I didn't do my walk today either. Let's go together, right? So Really deepening our community experience in that that doesn't mean that it always has to be in community, but I think the community needs to take care of each other and needs to caution ourselves against selfish care, which can actually take the form of abuse against those of us who um, tend to carry most of the work.
0: When I think about some of the emotions and the the motivations that really power you to be like a lion working in this in this space um this quote of yours jumped out at me the way i keep my kids safe is to transform the system and when the motivation comes from being a parent and from home and like i'm going to take care of my children in this way that is really really powerful can you talk about that part of it for you?
1: Sure. I mean, you'll hear often mothers of the people who've been killed by police say, well, he was a good boy. You know, you'll hear, um, I remember we were at a gathering in Tampa for um, Andrew and Mike Brown's dad was there. And, you know, there were other families there and they started talking about, you know, how their children were on the honor roll right? Or how Andrew was like this scholar athlete and, you know, his mother is, um, you know, well-educated, both of his parents are, right? And they were talking about, you know, he didn't deserve this, right? And you'll hear them often say things like that. He didn't deserve this. And then what I realized is, you know, for generations, we've always kind of um, put the burden of our children's safety on the children and on ourselves, right? We've um, had these speeches. The one part I did appreciate in The Hate You Give was, you know, the talk, right? This idea of what do you do with your hands when you're pulled over by police, right? Because we all had the talk, right? My mother did that, you know, with us. My brother was taught Especially how do you what tone do you use? Right. Don't really look them in the eye. Right. Look them in the eye a little, but not all the way. Right. But when you're hearing these stories, these kids got the talk. These kids weren't doing anything wrong. Trayvon wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. And so, how do you survive these encounters? And the only way to really survive is not putting them on the honor roll, not telling them to pull their pants up, not listening to Bill Cosby, who says, you know, don't name them African names, right? Not, not. It's, it's not what music they listen to, right? It's the system. The system has to be transformed. These children are not going to be safe by pulling their pants up. They're not going to get to safety by not listening to hip-hop. It's the system that has to be transformed. So because I want my three children to be safe, and then all of the children that I call my spirit children, and all of us who are connected by spirit, whether we know each other or not, because we want safety, we have to support the trend. We have to engage in the transformation of the system. So that's what I meant by that is that, I'm gonna struggle as hard as I possibly can to transform the system, to create a world where my children can get home safely, right?
0: Hmm. So important. Um you know, just for the historical record and just because it's a great and interesting sort of story, um, you were, you were of course, at the first meeting of Black Lives Matter. That uh, when Patrice Cullors called many people to her space at St. Elmo's Village and started this journey. Can you tell us the story of that first meeting and how it sort of fanned out from there?
1: Sure. So, the night that Zimmerman was acquitted in the killing of Trayvon Martin, uh, thousands of us of us in Los Angeles, and, you know, many more around the country and around the world kind of erupted into what I call intuitive organizing, right? So we convened, there was rage, there was sadness. And then we commenced to shutting stuff down, right? So we marched, basically for three days, we marched. And it was interesting how quickly um, it was clear, it became clear that we had to be intentional about targets, right? So we marched north, which means north up Crenshaw is whiter and more affluent. Um, and we shut sites down that mattered to more affluent white folks. Um, and that made sense. However, there was no discussion about the intentionality. We just kind of moved, and whoever had the bullhorn or was at the front of the line was in charge of kind of picking out the root, right?
0: You and I have talked about this before, that that was really important to you and the group because so often we are activists and protesting in our neighborhoods, but we need to take that conversation to white communities so they can hear it and not just preach to the choir.
1: Absolutely. And we also know that, you know, if we're protesting white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative capitalism, right, we, we um, can't be marching south into our neighborhoods um, with all of the pent up rage, right? We saw what happened in 1992, right? Those forces don't really care what happens to our neighborhoods, but they do care if you march up to Hollywood and Highland and disrupt their Disneyland, right? Um, And Hollywood and Highland, for folks who don't know, is this kind of tourist site um, where, you know, folks go to get away from Black folks and poverty in Los Angeles, right? So people coming here, that's where they go. Um, And so it was important for us that... As they're terrorizing our communities, and that is absolutely what these killings by white supremacists and killings by police and security are. Right. It's terrorism in our community. As they're terrorizing our communities, we're not going to just hold it in our communities. That's what those black brunches were that were done up in the Bay Area. Right. Um, that's what all of these shutdowns are about, is about saying you don't get to have your spaces of comfort when our communities are being terrorized. And so we engaged in that work. And um, that was really important. Um And it was important that we articulated it. So, you know, we kind of articulated it in front of thousands of people on the bullhorn, but not as a collective. And so those first couple of days, I was in the streets with, you know, thousands of people in the streets, um, which included my own biological children and me, um, as well as my spirit children, who... Um, are my students in Pan-African Studies at Cal State L.A. And on the third day of protest, they decided that they were going to shut down the 10 freeway. It was the first freeway shutdown of the Black Lives Matter era. And my daughter, who's an activist herself, right, Um, I, at the time she was nine, I believe, she's going, come on, mama, let's get on the freeway. And I'm not <laughs> that crazy of a mama. So I was like, we won't be doing that, right? But we kind of watched this freeway down. Um. Uh, My son was still in a stroller. He was three. And so... Um, as we were standing there, um, I got a text message from Patrice Colors, who I had already been in community with. We had been building this Black organizers collective um, together for the last couple of years. so I got to know her a bit. but the text actually came from a phenomenal journalist named Tundaces Way Chimarenga, who was close with both of us, and um, the text said, meet at 9 p.m. at St. Elmo's Village. And I I always say it sounded like a message from the Underground Railroad, right? Like this secret meetup point, right? So I got, um, I I sent the message out to my students and um, we gathered that night. And I didn't know that Patrice had been in conversation with Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi about how to build a movement, not a moment. Um, but that first night, that's what it was. There were about 30 of us gathered in the courtyard of this black artist community called St. Elmo's Village um, in mid-city Los Angeles, and it was, you know, we met for hours and hours, and um, at the end, we circled up and we did the chant um, that we call Asada, right? It was the words of Asada Shakur, And we committed to building a movement, not a moment, right? Um, And we said the words, it is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win, right? And we talked about what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, And, you know, what does it mean to the words go on? uh, We must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains, right? So how do we build something like that? And... I think that um, as we were saying those words and as we were kind of pledging to build a movement, not a moment, um, I don't think we completely understood what that meant. But the pledge meant something to us. Right. And so when I was doing it, I was like, yes, you know, we have to do more than engage in the struggle for justice for Oscar Grant or Sean Bell or... um, Uh, Margaret Mitchell or Devin Brown. Right. These are all people who are killed by police who we organize for. And then at some point we stop organizing for them. Right. We either win a victory or we realize that we're not going to win a victory that all of their lives and spirits and the struggle for justice is all connected. You have to, we have to transform ourselves, right? Um, I think about something Tef Poe said once, um, and Tef is an an organizer from Ferguson. He's a um, hip-hop artist and organizer from Ferguson. And I heard him say once, um, he said, they keep asking us, when we're going back in the house. And then he said, we ain't never going back in the house. And I think that's what it has to be. We can never go back in the house, right? We have to engage for the rest of our lives. We have to leave a world for our children that's freer. And um, that's what we committed to, even though we didn't know all of what it would entail. We didn't know that it meant, you know, late nights. We didn't know that it meant that, you know, sometimes vacation time means, you know, protest time or meet-up time, right? We didn't know all of these things, but that's what it is.
0: So what happened at that first meeting?
1: I don't remember everything. I remember... (laughs) um,
0: That's history.
1: I know. I remember the images of it. It's almost like um, I remember the circle. I imagine, and one day I'll look it up, I feel like the moon was full. And I don't know if it was, but I felt it was, like the circle outside. So the way St. Elmo's Village is set up is it really feels like an African village. There's this huge courtyard where we all assemble. And so for the first part of the meeting, there's this kind of shared space. It's almost like a barn that you open the door of. And we were all gathered at different tables talking about what it means to build a movement. I remember that conversation. We talked about what we were willing to give to the movement, right? We um, talked about, like, different people's gifts, like artists and healers. And, you know, um, we were also really intentional in um, talking about what it meant to be mothers. There were a couple of us who were mothers in that space. Um, We talked about for some of my students, this was new, right? Um, Like, there hasn't been a movement of this sort in their lifetimes, right? If you're talking about 18, 19, 20 year olds, right? Um, Even our lifetimes, right? We were born on the tail end of the um, Black Power movement. We don't remember it, right? Um, And so I think that kind of figuring out what this means and what our contributions are and what we have to build from that was some of the conversation. And then I just remember the beauty of the chant. So after hours of having these conversations, I remember going out into the courtyard and holding hands with people, some I knew and some I didn't. And these words, Patrice was standing at the center of the circle, and we all repeated after her. And at first, we did it in a whisper, then we did it in our regular voice. And the last one, I remember looking up, and the sky was really black. But I do remember seeing the moon and like yelling it to the heavens, right? Yelling it to our ancestors, yelling it to the Creator. And I remember feeling differently and feeling inspired and feeling like um, we can't lose, right? Feeling like the justice that we were seeking was inevitable. And at that time, it felt like we were going to win it tomorrow.
0: Thank you to Dr. Abella for another great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast yourself into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please subscribe, rate and review and tell your friends about the show. Torrey shows written by me, Torrey, and produced by Chris Colbert. Our editor is Brandon Taggo. Our photographer is Chuck Marcus. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from more amazing folks. Because the man can't shut us down.